life. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo. The controversy over the DSM-5 has finally surfaced to the media. For us involved in the special needs community, we've long known that this was coming. And here at the Coffee Clash, I've really tried to bring this issue to light for almost a year and a half because it's so important. You know, and it's my hope in presenting a three-part series on the DSM-5 to enlighten um, and approach the subject objectively from all sides. Um, I was honored yesterday that I was able to interview Dr. Temple Grandin, Diane Kennedy, and Rebecca Banks, um, discussing the changes um, in the DSM as it's going to pertain to autism. Um, I've invited um, a current member of the DSM-5 task force to also join me for an interview, and I will be um, announcing a date on that hopefully very soon. And, you know, I want to approach this very controversial topic fairly and objectively, you know, not to sensationalize it, but to inform parents and educators of the enormous ramifications that it could have on our children and teens with mental illness. So um, as much as most of the media coverage is talking about autism, uh, there are a lot of other disorders um, that really are headed for revisions and changes that need to be brought to light as well. And tonight, Dr. Alan Francis is here. And uh, he was the chair of the DSM-4 task force, and um, I am just thrilled to have him back. He's been my guest before, and we are going to discuss a little bit of the history of the DSM, what's going on with the DSM, and then we're going to speak about particular, very specific um, disorder changes. So, Dr. Francis, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I've heard a few whispers um, that you have some concerns over the DSM-5. Um, so I thought maybe we would start with um, just a little background, and um, you know, then we'll go right into it. Um, how is the committee assembled for the task force, and how is criteria chosen? Well, I think that's part of the problem. When, when someone's selected to be the head of the task force, there's really no discussion beforehand about what the goals will be or the, or the methods, and that person is given tremendous um, freedom to choose how to do it, um, what the goals will be and, and how to, which people will do it. I think there should be a, a much more um, regulated and systematic process. It's probably, DSM is probably outgrown the American Psychiatric Association. It doesn't really make sense for one professional group to dominate psychiatric diagnosis, particularly since psychiatrists at this point are only 7% of all mental health workers. So I think for the future, we should probably do something like what the FDA does for new drugs. Uh, there needs to be a careful, systematic evaluation of the risks and benefits of new drugs. There should be the same thing for new diagnoses. New diagnoses in psychiatry can be much more dangerous than new drugs because they can include millions and millions of people who previously didn't have a diagnosis. And too often now, when someone gets a diagnosis, that means they get medication treatment. And quite often that medication treatment may not be necessary and can be quite harmful. So I, I would like to see for the future, for future revisions, that there be a more systematic way that's more inclusive of uh, different disciplines and types of expertise that, that uh, transcend what's available just in psychiatry. Right. And, you know, I know that you have, you know, also very specific um, problems um, with the upcoming DSM. So, you know, w what is your most pressing concern? 
Well, I think the general issue is that the DSM has become enormously important. It sort of sets the boundaries of psychiatry. It, it uh, decides which people get a diagnosis and are considered to have a mental disorder and which people are considered well. And depending on small changes in how the criteria are written, what's included in the manual or not included in the manual, you can have tens of millions of people getting a diagnosis or not getting a diagnosis. And again, the way the world works now with the tremendous power of drug company marketing, way too often getting a, a diagnosis means that you're going to be treated with medicine. Sometimes that medicine is crucially important. So the people who really need psychiatric treatment, diagnosis, those diagnoses are usually pretty clear-cut. The more severe the problem, the easier it is to make the diagnosis, the more plastic the presentation. The people who have severe problems definitely deserve and often desperately need psychiatric treatment. But what's happened is that the boundary has expanded so widely that now it borders on normal. And that's a really populist boundary. There are lots of people who are on the boundary between normal and having a mental disorder. And really slight changes can include um, the, the misidentification of people who would be better left to their own devices, not being diagnosed and not being treated. So my, my overall objection is that there's a kind of diagnostic inflation with the widening of, of, of mental disorder so that the definition is now capturing lots of people who probably don't need a diagnosis and don't need treatment. Well, you know, when we, when we spoke um, earlier, when we uh, communicated earlier in the week, you had mentioned that you had a concern that people um, would be turned off, I guess, by the media coverage of the DSM and um, not be using the medications that they need. Um, you know, and in turn, you know, there, there are gonna, there's going to be a population that, um, you know, you may feel is not really fitting the criteria but does need some type of help. So, you know, it's just very difficult because it's also very subjective. It's not like you go for a blood test and you're diagnosed. Yeah, that, that's precisely right. The, the rates of psychiatric disorder can vary dramatically depending on very small changes, seemingly very small changes in how things are, are defined. And so if you lower the threshold just a little bit, you may get you know, millions of more people included. If you raise the threshold, you reduce the, the numbers of people included. And I, I think w what we've done recently has gone way overboard. And so diagnoses are being made too loosely. Treatments being um, given, especially medication treatment, is being dispensed, especially by primary care doctors um, with relatively little training in psychiatry and often very few minutes with the patient uh, to people who may not need it. And so my concern is that the right people should be getting the treatment. The people who have clear-cut severe disorders that absolutely need to be diagnosed and need to be treated. And it's a terrible thing that they're under-resourced at this point. The people with uh, clear-cut psychiatric problems often don't get treatment. At the same time, people who have uh, problems in life but maybe not mental disorders are getting much more treatment and much more medication than they need. So there's a kind of misallocation of resources away from people who desperately need it to people to people who might do better without it. I mean, you know, the state of the of our mental health care system in the United States is a disgrace. Um, you know, people aren't getting the services that they need. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a huge problem with the with the cuts. Um you know, which well, it's is not just psychiatry, it's all it's all the medicine is kind of disjointed. Absolutely. We're, we're, with, with um, lots of testing and treatment that's unnecessary and yet lots of people who desperately need help not, not having insurance for it. So it's not just a particular problem to psychiatry. It's a general sort of misallocation of resources in all of medicine. 
you know, and this is this is a manual that is, you know, probably one of the most influential manuals in the country, if not in the world. And, you know, this isn't taken lately. It takes years to develop this. Um, So what are your major concerns about how it's being done? Well, I think that the people doing it mean well. Um, But they started out with um, goals that were way too ambitious. They wanted to accomplish a paradigm shift in psychiatric diagnosis well before there was scientific evidence that we were ready for it. And the first disappointment they had was the hope that maybe the diagnostic system would, would be much more biologically based, and that's going to happen in the future, but slowly. Absolutely. The second right. hope was kind of a preventive psychiatry. Can we get to people early in their course before they're the, the disease has manifested itself fully and, and created a lot of, of, of secondary damage. This is a terrific idea, but the trouble is that we don't have the tools, that anything that tries to identify people preventively will misidentify lots of people who don't go on to have the, uh, the target diagnosis. If you want to uh, prevent psychosis and identify early people who are liable to have it, you wind up diagnosing nine people who won't go on to psychosis for everyone who will. And in the world as it runs now, lots of those people are going to get antipsychotic medication that causes tremendous weight gain. And kids a pound a week for the first three months. A kid who weighs 110 will go up to 122 or even more. Um, and, and that's very risky. We already have a childhood obesity epidemic. Uh, adding to that increases the risk of, of diabetes and, and heart disease, may even shorten life expectancy. And so I think any change, any suggestion that, that has the good intention of preventing some later problem carries with it the current risk of creating more problems uh, than could possibly be solved. And for none of the new diagnoses in DSM-5, is there any uh, solid scientific evidence that we can accurately identify the people at risk um, nor is there evidence that the intervention early is going to make a difference in the long run. And we do know, that one thing that's definite is that lots of the interventions that people get in real life may be quite harmful and dangerous. So I, I would say the biggest problem for starters was excessive ambition to make a big difference. And in, in, in sort of having too much of a reach, um, there's too little of the grass. And trying to fly too high, it's kind of fallen to, to earth. I think the second problem with it, was more of a process problem, that the whole endeavor was quite secretive, confidentiality agreements, people on the committee um, unwilling uh, to, to share fully what was happening as it was happening, secretive, and also quite closed, so that um, influence from outside has been resisted. There's a kind of circle of the wagons um, aspect to it. At, at this point, there's a petition of mental health professionals that's been signed by about 11,000 professionals endorsed by 45 um, professional organizations, many prominent ones like divisions of the American Psychological Association, the American Counseling Association, the British Psychological Society, all asking that there be an independent review of the DSM-5 suggestions. And they're so great, let's subject them to an independent review by people who are expert in um, evidence-based medicine, have no stake in the the situation, and see what they say. And um, the APA has not responded to this. Uh, They're very resistant to calls for change. I think the only thing that will stop them is if there's a massive user's revolt. To the degree that 
the people who would be buying and using DSM and to the patients who would be um, diagnosed with it to the degree that they object, I think that may finally get the attention of what's previously been a very closed process. Well, you know, um, I'm glad that you said that the intentions were good because I think just like you, these are good men and women um, trying to do the right thing with a very difficult task. So, you know, first I want to touch upon the comment that you made um, about um, preventative care. Let me just make clear, you know, there are, a lot of people have been critical of the APA and of the people working on it as if they're shills for the drug companies. And that's just completely wrong. I know the people doing this, yeah. and they couldn't care less about helping drug companies. They really firmly believe that the suggestions they're making will help people. And I believe that in their hands, these suggestions might be fine. What I worry about is their naivete about how things get misused in the translation from what's written in the book to what's actually practiced. Well, when so you were on last of- time, yes, that that is something you really stressed um, that – you know, I, I've said that when I've spoken to you to people that, it, to me, you're a man um, with regrets, not because of what you did, but because what was intended was not followed through on. Um, you know, and I think that that's always a fear, you know, that there's misinterpretation. You have to be really careful and make sure that everything is done as precisely as possible and not open up. Anything can possibly be misused. There's such a huge financial stake in this in terms of drug company profits, and also there's a huge forensic stake in how the manual is used in courtrooms. If anything can be twisted and misused, you have to assume it will be. And so in being adventurous and trying to do a great deal, they've left all sorts of targets for misuse, and and I'm concerned that there will be many unintended consequences as a result. But I interrupted you, Sarah. You're going to go back to Well, I was was thinking, because, you know, a lot of what you're telling me in my mind for some reason right now is processing more for adults, and my show is more for children. Um, But what what did strike me was that, you know, um, for children, early intervention is key. Um, And for adults, I mean, there are situational or transitional types of periods where people have problems, um, be it, you know, depression, psychosis, anxiety, whatever it may be. And really, what is the harm in um, diagnosing or treating somebody who may be in a situational situation? Let's divide it into two parts. I think think that for um, kids, prevention is key, but we don't have the tools yet. So it's it's very difficult to make definitive diagnoses in kids. There's a short track record. The symptoms in kids often present um, atypically. Um, in teenagers, there's often the complication of drug use. There can be family turmoil, developmental turmoil, troubles in school, being teased by classmates. It's very, very difficult to make diagnoses in, in kids and teenagers. And I would be especially cautious about overreaching um, in situations where we don't understand problems. There are tons of kids with very severe problems and parents going nuts, not knowing what to do with them, and teachers going nuts, not knowing what to do with them. And it's been very sort of easy over the last 15 years to pin a label. You know, this kid's problems are ADD, this kid's problems are childhood bipolar disorder, this kid's problems are autism, as if that explains the problem and, and somehow improve it, make it go away. I'm all for after labeling when it can be done. What I'm more worried about is inaccurate labeling that can lead to harmful harmful consequences. And I, I recently wrote a piece saying that with the autism situation, the um, 
the problem, I, I, I'm absolutely sure that there's way over diagnosis of autism, but the problem is that recent New York Times article pointed out is if you suddenly reduce the overdiagnosis, what will happen to all the kids who are getting services? Because, you know, previously they needed to have the diagnosis of requirement to qualify for services. I think the problem there is that services have been, school services and other services have been way too closely linked to diagnosis, particularly in childhood. And these diagnoses are fallible, um, not really excellent guides about who should get and who shouldn't get um, expensive extra services. I think the services should be geared to, to real problems, not necessarily to a DSM diagnosis. So because a kid has or doesn't have a diagnosis of autism, that shouldn't necessarily decide whether they get services or not. It should be what are their individualized needs, and there must be better ways than um, DSM diagnosis to determine who should qualify and who shouldn't. Well, we're going to speak um, later on in the interview much more specifically about autism, but, um, you know, but basically then if what you're saying is the case, then basically the, there needs to be a complete overhaul of the system in which children receive services. So, you know, it, it becomes extremely complicated. And, you know, um, you, know you had mentioned that, um, you know, p parents may be looking at a diagnosis, thinking that when they get the diagnosis there will be a cure and it will go away. Um, and as a special needs parent, you know, I, I really don't see it that way because for a lot of parents it validates that um, confusion, especially for first-time parents, when you know something isn't right, um, and it gives them a place to start. Um, but you know, it's it's you know we'll we'll talk more about um, autism later. But um, well, you know, let me, let me respond to that. I think the problem. I think you're absolutely right. That if you have a kid who needs help, everyone around that kid's going to be desperate to find an answer, um, both an answer that explains it and an answer that, you know, provides a, a cure for it or at least an alleviation. The problem is that I think too much weight is given to the DSM. It's treated as if um, it's a Bible and as if the things included in the book are, you know, easy to diagnose, and once you diagnose it, you understand the problem. I think it's, everything, especially in child psychiatry, is much less certain than that. Right, and, and you just, know, when they're so young, it, it, it unravels, it takes years to unravel exactly. what they have. But unfortunately, parents are pinned in a situation where um, they're forced to get a diagnosis to get services for their child. Um, well, that's, it's a what I'm, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. That, that's exactly yeah. what I'm worried about. I think that the, too much weight's been given, too much authority has been given to the presence or absence of a given diagnosis. And, and, and these diagnoses are too fallible. And um, the the, um, the rates of the diagnoses vary so dramatically based on very small changes in how the conditions are defined. And I don't think this is the best way of doing things. I think that there should be a radical restructuring with a recognition of the limitations of DSM diagnosis and finding more accurate ways to match particular services to particular needs. The diagnosis is usually just way too uh, blunt an instrument and too fallible an instrument to do it. Well, you know, our kids are, are there is no, um, you know, black or white. They're very, it's all gray area. It's so dimensional that it would be very difficult for any type of manual to um, accurately account for um, their needs. But um, let's go back to what we talked about before. You know, the DSM obviously has an impact directly on people. Um, but, you know, it has an impact on public health as a whole. And allocation of resources and funds is closely tied to the DSM. So can you just educate us a little on that? 
Sure. I, I think there's a recent uh, survey done by the CDC that said that about 20% of the American population has a psychiatric diagnosis, a huge number. It's an enormously high number. And over a lifetime, it would be close to half of people in general population would get a diagnosis. This suggests to me, again, diagnostic inflation. More interestingly to me, 5% of the population, one-fourth of those who get a diagnosis, have a severe illness. The 5% are the people who need the most help. And the problem we now have is that many of them don't get it. People with severe depression, only one-third of them see mental health professionals. Uh, we have a lot of people, 11% of the population is taking antidepressants, but the, the um, more than two-thirds of those people are not depressed when they're taking the antidepressants. Some of them may need it because of long-term problems, but some of them probably don't, whereas we only have one-third of the severely depressed people getting treatment. So I think there's a misallocation of resources. The attention has been drawn to those people who are mildly disturbed and who may not need medicine, may get worse from it, and away from those who have moderate to severe problems who desperately need help. And part of this is because of drug companies, that the market is much bigger. Severe uh, problems are much less common. The less severe problems are very common. So the real market is to get people who have less severe problems to buy the product. And there's, is there? Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I think what this does is, is misallocate resources. I think we need to be treating the people who need it much better than we are. And I think we have to be aware of the fact that maybe 85% of the medication that's prescribed, psychiatric medication that's prescribed, is prescribed by primary care doctors. So that there's, is, there's, I'm sorry, uh, is prescribed by what? Primary care doctors. Primary, so that is a huge concern. That makes me crazy. Yeah, the, yeah. Psychiatrists are prescribing a relatively small percentage right. of all psychotropic medicine. And the primary care, some of the primary care doctors are experts, but most of them, don't have a lot of training in, in these medicines, and what training they right. do have often comes from drug company representatives. Right. And most of them are seeing a patient for seven or eight minutes. And yeah, the patient's been influenced by advertising. Mm -hmm. yeah, there, there are only two countries in the world that allow drug companies to advertise on TV and the Internet and, uh, and magazines, and it's us in New Zealand. In the rest of the world, drug companies are much more tightly controlled. So if you constantly bombard the um, the airwaves and the magazines with depictions of bipolar disorder or attention deficit, you can start getting everyone thinking they have it and that their kids may have it. And I think well, that it that creates, it creates an imbalance. You know, I want to just back up um, before I forget my thought. Um, you know, you were saying that 5% of the population has severe mental illness and that there's 15% that have moderate um, or mild. Now, Playing devil's advocate, isn't there a risk then if those 15% aren't treated that they could then grow into the 5% and increase well, the 5%? Well, sure. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea behind the preventative approach. The problem is that we don't have a way of identifying the people who go on to more severe problems, that we don't have an intervention that prevents it, and that the interventions we do have have remarkably high risks. So I think it would be great to be able to prevent people having a progression to severe illness. We just don't have the tools. And in trying to do it, the problem is we, we may be very much over-treating the people with milder problems that are more maybe on the other side of the boundary with their malady. Um, you know, what concerns me also about the DSM, and, you know, when I, when I think about it, I say, well, you know, maybe there will never be a time because, you know, there's just so much research and so many things happening. But, you know, um, do you have a concern that the DSM-5 is ready 
um, to be official? And, you know, can it still be changed? Because, you know, as we'll talk about later, I mean, I, I have the opportunity to interview some of the the biggest research foundations in the world. And what's coming up in the next couple of years is just incredible. And when, you know, that information comes out, it's going to make this obsolete. Well, I think there are two kinds of, of um, questions. One is the DSM has been dogged by lots of bureaucratic and uh, organizational problems, and um, everything's been much delayed. And some of the things that were meant to be done for quality control can't be done because they're running out of time and every all the deadlines have been missed. I think they should be delaying DSM until they can guarantee a quality product. I think there should be an independent review um, uh, by, by people outside of APA. I think that the uh, field trials are, are showing low reliabilities, low agreement amongst clinicians using the DSM because it's poorly written. And I don't think it's ready to come out when they expect it to come out. So I think there should be a, a delay um, to, to make sure that when the product comes out, it's a quality product that's usable. And I don't think that we'll get that with their current schedule. I think the longer issue, the longer term issue is um, at what rate should the diagnostic system change? And my sense is that unless you have something that's um, well established that um, has proven itself safe and scientifically sound, it doesn't make sense to arbitrarily be um, adjusting the system in small ways, um, you know, just based on the arbitrary whims of the people who are chosen to be doing the manual. So I would be very conservative about about changes until we know that the suggestion made has a, a, a clear purpose and will be safe, will not cause serious unintended consequences, uh, will help people rather than harm them. And I worry that the changes being suggested on balance are, are very, very risky with, with very small gain. Is there a safety net in place? I mean, let's just say it does come out on time. Um, is there a safety net, let's just say a, a revision or an addition, which there are many, um, winds up to be causing more harm than good? And, you know, it's first do no harm. Um, are, are there um, amendments or procedures in place? Well, actually, one of the things that the, the makers of DSF keep talking about is that it's a living document, that it's just scientific hypotheses, that although they recognize that many of the proposals have not been sufficiently tested, they can be tested later on and changed as needed. I think this is very wrongheaded. I think that the DSM is an official manual that dramatically affects people's lives now. So you want to get it right. You want to make sure that there aren't going to be harmful consequences if you can possibly prevent it. I don't think it's a living document in the sense that it's okay to throw in untested scientific hypotheses to be tested later. I don't think DSM should be a research agenda, you know, marking possible interesting targets for future research. It has to be a practical work-a-day guide that will do the most good and the least harm in the current world. So I, I object to their willingness to come out with a low-quality product because it can theoretically be easily changed later if things don't work. They, they right. have a responsibility to come out with a quality product. They've had enough time. they spent $25 million on this. They've had enough time and enough money to do it. And I think if it takes a little extra time and a little extra money to get it right, it should be done that way. I think the, the um, fail-safe will be people won't use it. Um, there's the, uh, a thing called the ICD-10-CM, which mm -hmm. are a set of codes that will be coming out uh, just shortly after the DSM-5 is scheduled to come out. And people will be able to download that for free and use those codes and learn their psychopathology somewhere else. 
DSM is you doing know, a private textbook as well as a, a manual for diagnosis. And a lot of people buy it because it's a way of learning psychiatry. If it doesn't teach psychiatry very well, people won't use it. You know, I'm fortunate that I have fantastic care for my uh, child. And I can remember when, um, you know, I came home with the slip and, you know, the receipt, and I'm looking at the DSM codes, and I, I called him up and I said, you know, what is that code? But, you know, what what is her diagnosis? And I loved his reply. And he said, for what purpose? Yeah. And he says, because if you want to know what the diagnosis is so that you can present it for her services and accommodations, it's X, Y, Z. But the reality is it doesn't make a difference, <laughs> you know. And it was really just so true because these kids are so dimensional, which we're, we're going to go into in a few minutes. Um, and I think a lot of psychiatrists are, are looking that way. That I mean, let's face it, there has to be some type of guideline. I mean, there has to be some type of manual that that you know lists all of this. You know, what alternative do you do you would you like to see? And what are other parts of the world using? Well, no, I think that let me let me be clear. The, the DSM is an enormously valuable uh, vehicle for communication amongst clinicians for. Um, Bridging the interface between research and clinicians. A researcher can do a project and now a clinician can say, oh, that's my patient because they're both speaking off the same page. It's great mm-hmm. for education. A DSM, is, is, so long as someone recognizes the limitations of psychiatric diagnosis, is humble about them, modest about them, it's an enormously valuable practical tool, but it's not a Bible. It's not something that should be worshipped. And everyone, I think, needs to understand the limitations of the DSM, what it can do and what it can't do. I think that if used well, the DSM is the best we have. It's not the best we'd like to have. It would be great to have biological tests to make these diagnoses. And we're you know, several decades behind medicine in having biological tests, and they're just beginning to, to, to we can see the horizon where we'll have some mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's and maybe gradually for other disorders. But, but given the state of current uncertainty, it's crucially important that everyone, clinicians and also parents and also patients, Everyone should know the DSM-5. It's a useful tool for communication, but not worship it and not treat it as if it's some sort of uh, final word. And to be very aware of the limitation that slight changes in definition result in tremendous differences in who gets defined and who doesn't. So whenever we have a huge increase in rates over a very short period of time, always look for the change in the way the condition is defined or the way it's being used in practice. Uh, much more than, you know, vaccines are causing it or there's a sudden change in how the kids are. The kids don't change fast, the diagnoses and the, the labels for them do. All right. Well, well, I know where you're going with that one. I, we're going to talk about uh, autism in a little bit, but let's start with um, let's start with ADHD. There are going to be some changes um, for the criteria for ADHD. Um, you know, I, I've been interviewing a lot of experts, and you know, there's a new there's a new view. Um, you know, it's not as um, cut and dry as it used to be. It's not um, you know just limited to a lack of focus. Um, so, what are the changes the parents need to know about? Well, I think the first thing to be aware of is that um, ADHD used to occur in you know maybe three and a half four percent of kids, and now it's close to ten percent. There's been almost a tripling in the rates in just the last fifteen years. Um, some of this may be better case finding. I, I believe that. So whenever you have a huge jump like this, it means that at least some kids who needed the diagnosis and weren't getting it are now getting it. But a lot of it has to be um, including within the ADD spectrum 
all sorts of other problems, and including normal hyperactivity, normal problems in concentration, that previously wouldn't be diagnosed as ADD. But it becomes a kind of um, rubric, explain all rubric, that includes kids who um, don't really need the diagnosis and form it wasn't meant. One of the problems here is that the stimulant medication may be enormously helpful for kids who really need it, but may not be so helpful, and the side effects may be not worth it for kids who don't. Right now, 4% of kids are getting stimulants. And even worse, there's a huge black market, a secondary market for stimulants. When someone gets a prescription and hands it on to a friend or sells it to a friend. So there's a public health problem that's caused by the overdiagnosis of ADD. So you'd think that in a sensible world, what DSM-5 should be doing is, um, if anything, narrowing the criteria and maybe in the text indicating that this is a diagnosis that's probably being overused and here are some clinical tips for uh, ways in which not to be overusing it. Instead, well, you know, I, the gate, only the, instead the gate's going to be open wider. That it's going to be a much easier diagnosis for kids to get in DSM five, so that the rates would go up even further. And they're making it terrifically easy for adults to get, and that's a huge problem because most adults feel that they have distractibility problems and they'd like to concentrate better. And um, so lots of normals will be mislabeled as having ADD. And virtually every psychiatric disorder that occurs in adulthood, virtually every disorder affects concentration and many affect uh, activity. So what will happen with these new criteria will be that lots of normal people will get a diagnosis of ADD, and lots of people who have other psychiatric disorders will get either the wrong diagnosis, ADD, or an additional diagnosis, ADD. And you'll have lots more stimulant use where it's really not, not necessary. So this is a, a perfect instance of a diagnosis that's exploded, tripled in, in rates during a very short period of time, and DSM-5 will be making it worse. Um, you know, you had said that, um, you know, there were people that use um, stimulants and they don't react well to them. Um, you know, I think that that w we find often with the children um, because they're so sensitive to the medications. Um, but I liked that you referred to it as a spectrum because I think that's really how um, parents look at all of these disorders because they are a spectrum. And I know that they, you know, the term comorbidity is used a lot, that, you know, these kids have five and six different diagnoses, when in fact they, they, they just really are, as you said, on a spectrum of one particular diagnosis. And, you know, the effect of the medication, you had said that there are some kids that, you know, they take the stimulants and it works great, and there are other kids that they take it and it doesn't work great because they didn't need it. Is that what you said? Um yeah. Because, you know, I think that also, you know, whenever you use any type of medication, it affects the other neurotransmitters. So, you know, sometimes it's not that the child doesn't need something. Maybe it's just that that's, you know, not the right thing. You know, like I, I always feel you don't treat the diagnosis, and I think that's the huge problem. If a kid is diagnosed with ADHD, automatically the parent or, um, you know, a clinician might think, well, you treat them with stimulants, and, you know, maybe that's not what they need. Um, but what are the well, let me specific... just respond to that for a minute. I think, mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that's happened is that there, there are lots of kids who have all sorts of problems that, that actually can drive everyone around them nuts, and, and, and right. terrifically, terrifically difficult for them to be them when they have these problems. So there's, there's always been an, a strong desire to label and then do something to help. Right. And 
particularly, so like the last 15 years, we've had the three epidemics that have been in childhood disorders. The, the um, effort has been a sincere one to provide some certainty where previously there was um, uncertainty and some treatment where previously there was no treatment. And it, it all makes perfect sense, except if the diagnosis and the treatment are inaccurate and cause more problems than they're worth. And it all gets pushed by the drug company. So that for ADD, um, there was very little interest amongst the drug companies until the late 90s when new products came on the market. And simultaneously almost, um, the drug companies were given the right to advertise to consumers directly. So the huge increase in ADD, I think, can be largely attributed. It, it, most of it was not DSM-4. We made some slight changes that might have resulted in a slightly increased rate. But the tripling of the rate came because it became uh, the diagnosis du jour. It became a popular way of explaining all sorts of problems that kids had and parents had that previously didn't have a good explanation, didn't have a good treatment. And this would be great if it worked, but I think there's always an overshoot. And fads and things go too far in the direction of trying to explain things that really don't apply within the rubric and to apply treatments that may, may not be helpful. And then one other quick point. It, it's a real problem that people are getting multiple diagnoses and being given a kind of polypharmacy cocktail, and this is being mm -hmm. done with younger and younger kids mm -hmm. and often done off-label and carelessly and without a lot of scientific evidence that's useful. And sometimes, the, you know, we've had deaths from kids on, on um, excessive doses or um, combinations of drugs that, that were harmful. So I think if, if a parent has a kid who's on a lot of drugs, you don't stop anything yourself. It's always a mistake to take matters into your own hands. You need consultations. But I would certainly get a second or a third or fourth opinion. And, and I think that, that by and large, when someone's on lots of medicines, there should be a very good reason for it and something that, that the parents can understand. Right. And, I you know, as you said, there are some there are um, children and teens that are severely um, affected, you know, severe mental illness. And, you know, though those parents are in such desperate situation just to get the, the child calmed down and able to function. But, you know, I agree with you. I mean, actually, I, as I said earlier, I interviewed Dr. Grandin yesterday, and she was saying she is appalled. Um, by the use of, um, you know, the neuroleptics, the antipsychotics being given to children four or five years old, um, you know, and without unraveling, because really, you know, as I tell parents, I mean, that's your, that's become your job. You are now a detective. You need to unravel, and you really need to make sure that, let's just say, in the case of ADHD, that there aren't sensory issues. Um, creating the problem with focus, vision issues, learning disabilities. Um, you know, there's so much unraveling to do, um, you know, before you take the steps to medication. And, and some kids need it. And let's face it, there are kids that need medication. I, you know, I'm not anti-medication, but, you know, everything else has to be ruled out as well. Um, let's well I'm definitely, I'm, I just want to say, I'm definitely pro-medication. I think it's, uh, the medications right. are wonderful, but they have to be given with a clear rationale by people who know what they're doing. It shouldn't be after a 10-minute interview. It shouldn't be unduly focused by advertising. Um, should be checked up on and evaluated over time and always beware of someone getting multiple medicines unless there's a very clear indication. Be asking questions. Let's move on to um, childhood bipolar disorder because this is a big one. Um, you know, the, D the criteria in the DSM-4 uses adult criteria, and we now know that children uh, present very differently. And, and that really bipolar is very rare um, in young children. 
And now the introduction of um, TDD, tempered dysphoric disorder or tempered dysregulation disorder, um, is being introduced. And I think that it's probably being introduced for two reasons. Um, number one, because there are a lot of children that really aren't bipolar, but they do have these behavioral issues. And um, there are kids that are being um, diagnosed and labeled as oppositional defiant disorder, which I am really not a fan of. Um, you know, it's just a terrible label to put on a kid. Um, so now, how is the DSM-5 trying to, you know, compartmentalize these disorders? I think what's happened here is, is really shameful. That um, the, the rates of childhood bipolar disorder have increased by, by 40 times in just the last 15 years. It used to be a very you know, almost vanishingly rare condition. Now it's being diagnosed all the time. It's being treated with antipsychotic and mood stabilizing drugs that have that tremendous weight gain problem. The push for this comes partly from thought leaders um, who convinced the field really sold a bill of goods to the field. Uh, of child psychiatry and then extended out to pediatrics and other primary care specialties. So they started seeing bipolar disorder where previously they would have seen all sorts of other problems in kids. It's, it's not to say the kids don't have problems. The question is whether these problems are bipolar disorder. And what they did was repackage all sorts of behavioral and uh, attentional and emotional problems in childhood, temperamental problems, into mm -hmm. this label bipolar disorder and treat it very aggressively with medication, and the suggestion being that the person would need to be on it for life when the symptoms were very unclear. I, I think the drug companies got on board and, um, and pushed this really hard because it was a huge new market they could open up in kids. And it's, it's uh, absolutely shameful how much antipsychotics are being misused in children, even in, in infants. Uh, the correction for this, I think, is to warn people, um, including uh, the DSM-5 should be warning people about the overdiagnosis of bipolar in children. I think the major professional associations should be sponsoring conferences to re-educate um, clinicians who have been uh, kind of brainwashed by drug, drug companies into seeing bipolar in all sorts of childhood problems. And I think that this should just be a, a narrowing of what we have. Now, the people working on DSM-5 agree that there's a huge problem with childhood bipolar disorder. Right. Instead of saying and let's there is. deal with there this, is. and there is, and instead of just facing it down and saying, well, okay, we have to stop this excessive diagnosis because the the gains from the excessive use of the antipsychotics aren't worth all the risks. We don't know what these drugs are doing on young minds. We do know that it's going to make people gain weight. Maybe we shouldn't be relabeling, re repackaging people as bipolar until we know, you know, what the scores. But, what, but when but where was the kids land? I mean, there are kids that may there are kids that may really not be bipolar, but they're severely dysregulated and they don't have a quality of life or have an ability to really function on a any real level. Um, so you know, where would these kids land because they do yeah, need I'm not, services? I'm actually not against I'm not against trying. See, they're not they're sort of um, uncharted territory. No one knows what's best. If we knew what's best for them, we'd, right. we'd be doing it. We just don't know what's best. I'm not against the um, the use, the, the prudent, careful use of antipsychotics, even off-label for situations, if they're appropriately not named bipolar. I think it, it doesn't make sense to make up a fake diagnosis and treat it uh, with antipsychotics and with stabilize. But I think that you could recognize that a kid has atypical uh, temperament problems and behavioral problems and conduct problems. decide that it's severe enough, maybe we should try antipsychotics. But that right. should be the exception rather than the rule. 
it should be done very carefully with, with, with good follow-up. It probably should be done by a child psychiatrist, not by a primary care physician who's Absolutely. pulling samples off the shelf. Whenever you do something extraordinary, you need to do extra, have extraordinary procedures in place to make sure it's safe. And again, as you said before, first do no harm. What DSM-5 is suggesting is a well-meaning but, but really cockeyed solution. That in order to reduce the inappropriate diagnosis of bipolar disorder, they're suggesting introducing a new disorder that was originally named temper dysregulation. Now it's called um, disruptive mood dysregulation. Okay. And the hope is that this is less likely to lead to um, long-term prognostic uh, predictions that the person has had bipolar for life, less okay. likely to lead to antidepressant or mood-stabilizing treatment that may be harmful, and that it would be a, a kind of less stigmatizing, um, less uh, damaging uh, diagnosis of bipolar and replace bipolar when it's being misused. The thing that's crazy about this is, first of all, there's almost no research. There's been one research team for five years. This diagnosis was invented five years ago. It hasn't been studied. And my fear is it could make the problem worse. That when you have something as vague as temper dysregulation or disruptive mood dysregulation, you may get even more kids kids who are now not diagnosed by, by, with bipolar, getting this new makeshift unstudied diagnosis, it may actually result in even more inappropriate medication use. So I think that we shouldn't, again, it, a lot of the, the uh, best intentions lead to hell. And we shouldn't, in a well-intended way to reduce the problem of childhood bipolar disorder, which everyone recognizes is a, is a real issue, we shouldn't introduce something new that may have its own particular set of, of unintended consequences. You know, my understanding is that um, um, the temper, the TDD, as it was originally going to be called, which I'm glad they changed the name, um, really the difference between that, <clears throat> excuse me, and an oppositional defiant disorder was that it had basically the same criteria without the opposition. So, you know, I, I mean, listen, th there are kids that are so dysregulated, and there are parents that are at their wit's end, and, you know, they really do have to try to find something um, you know, because these kids need the services. These family needs the services. You know, they're struggling. Um, you know, I, I, I um, really respect and um, I've been, I've interviewed several times um, Dr. Dimitri Popolos and when I was talking before about things that are coming up the pike, I mean, he, his fear of harm phenotype just makes so much sense and the research that he's doing. And, you know, you just have to say, you know, there's so many other possibilities out there that is it is it premature? But you know we have to we we have to treat these kids. Um, well, you know, let, I think let me just let me just comment on that. See, that, that's exactly my my concern. We have to somehow try to help these kids, but I'm not sure we should always be diagnosing them and treating them with medication. Right. So the, I'm not saying it should never happen, but I'm saying if we are going to be using medication for things where we don't really know what we're doing. It should be done damn carefully with the uh, really experienced people doing it, with close monitoring, with a rationale, with uh, determination whether it's working or not, stopping the medicine if it's not working. I, I, I think the problem now is that we're throwing treatment at, at, at terrible problems without knowing whether the treatment's going to help or make things worse. And well, I think that you, that's what, careless. What, what do parents do? I mean, you know, as a mom, I'm, I'm just thinking you know we're frightened confused you know i mean what what how do parents know whether they're doing the right thing you don't 
You really don't. That's why it's important to read everything you get your hands on. It's important to get lots of opinions and to, to not, not trust any one judgment because there's been so much confusion and controversy in these fields. It's important to remember to do no harm. That's not just for doctors. That's for parents, too. Right. Exactly. Sometimes doing, exactly. Trying, meaning, meaning the best and wanting the best for your kid can sometimes lead to measures that in the long run will be more harmful than helpful. It's a very, I think it's best to recognize our limitations, that there's nothing, there's no part of psychiatry that's more confused than child psychiatry. That's why the SADs are all in child psychiatry. And the, the problems are the most desperate, the solutions are the least clear, the potential harm the greatest, so the, it's a really high-risk situation. And you have to be pretty sure there's going to be a gain. So if it's my kid, I want to know everything possible. I don't want a fake diagnosis. If we're treating a behavioral problem and nothing else is working, I'd rather have the target be that behavioral problem than say, well, it's childhood bipolar disorder, and have it the treatment very carefully monitored to see how it affects that, that, that particular problem. Right. And parents have to understand there's no magic pill. Um, really you know, they, they they want to believe in a magic pill, but, you know, I've, I've, I speak to thousands of parents, and I don't know one that's found one. Um, you know, it's, it's, it really needs to be approached on so many other levels. And medication well, helps tremendously. Let me put it slightly different. Sometimes there is a magic pill. So that for, for lots of problems, the pills are magically helpful. If a person has a classic presentation of a disorder, uh, it's very likely that they're going to have a magically good response to it. And that's good to know. The further away the presentation is from classic and the younger the kid, the less likely it is that there's going to be a magic pill. And especially for teenagers, uh, there's no clear evidence that antidepressants work well in teenagers. They may cause more problems than than, than they um, actually cure. So that do-no-harm thing, which um, goes back in medicine for 2,500 years, really is also a parenting injunction. As desperate as the situation seems now, it's conceivable that, Doing something that um, will make things worse in the long run will, will be will be regretted even more than than, than doing less. Right. And there are also the lots benefit, of great right? there are lots of great behavioral treatments that, that need to often be tried uh, before jumping to uh, medication. I believe in a kind of step diagnosis approach, that especially with kids. You don't necessarily feel you can make the diagnosis the first time you see the kid. Right. And over time, you get a much clearer picture. And if possible, you begin with the simple things, education, normalization, training and how to deal with a difficult kid, and you jump to a diagnosis and a treatment only after the other things have failed. Right. And doctors now, I find, are much more in tune to be much more honest with parents and just not throw a label at the child and are really explaining the dimensional and aspects of the subgroups, phenotypes, um, you know, and it's so important for parents to get that. Let's move on before we run out of time. To the big one, not because it's more important, but because it seems to be more controversial, which is autism. Now, the classic autism is not going to be changed much in the DSM-5, but Asperger's and PDD, there's going to be huge changes. And, you know, I applaud you for putting Asperger's in the DSM-4. Um, there is a huge population of children that are just not fitting um, into different um, diagnoses that have a lot of different issues. So how can narrowing the criteria um, 
which is proposed to narrow the criteria, <clears throat> excuse me, to eliminate the subgroups, um, the subtitles of Asperger's and PDD, and just have an autism spectrum diagnosis. Um, how can that narrowing, narrowing, ugh, narrowing of the criteria not let a huge population fall through the cracks? Well, I think it's a, it's a huge problem without any clear right answer. I think when we put Asperger's in DSM, we knew it would triple or maybe quadruple the rate of autism. The rate of autism was somewhere between two, 1 in 2,000 and 1 in 5,000 kids. And we, we did field trials, and our, our guess was that with, with Asperger's, if you counted that and classic autism together, it might get a rate of something like 1 in 500 to 1 in 750 kids. Instead, the rate's about 1 in 100 now and higher for boys in the United mm -hmm. States. And in Korea, there was a study recently that said 1 in 38, get that, 1 in 38, people in Korea would get the diagnosis. Now, again, it's not like they have more autism. It's all labeling. It's the way the studies are conducted. It's the way the labels are applied. So I think that the, the, including Asperger's was useful, and it picked up people who had problems, and they, I think they feel more comfortable having a, a definition for their problems, and, 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 and in many instances, the services have been very helpful. But what happened as an unintended consequence was that the spectrum spread in all sorts of of behavioral and emotional and, and interest problems that weren't necessarily meant to be um, diagnosed within either autism or, or Asperger's have now been diagnosed as autism, and services have been closely tied to having the diagnosis. And I, I fully understand that the, the kids who get the diagnosis of autism uh, who maybe don't need that diagnosis are troubled and have all sorts of problems. The question is whether they have problems that should be labeled as autism. And to me, I would like to have two things. I, I, I think I respect two values in this. One value is that we have accurate diagnosis. I think that um, spreading the, the diagnosis, broadening it so widely that it includes every conceivable type of problem um, in, in, in social interaction and, and, and interest that the, the kids can have distorts it and, and um, makes for less precision. On the other hand, I don't think that kids who are getting school services should suddenly be dumped on the street because they don't have the diagnosis. I don't think the diagnosis was an authoritative way of determining whether they should be getting services. So it may be impractical, but, but for me, the, the long-range solution to this is to have precise diagnosis, but to realize that the diagnosis is not necessarily the best guide to who gets service in schools. If that needs to be done on a kind of testing that's much more precise than the broad and very elastic definition of autism. Um, you know, there are um, adults on the spectrum that struggled through their ch childhood. They weren't, you know, diagnosed until, you know, they were older. <clears throat> and, you know, the the diagnosis for these children makes such a difference in their lives. Um, and I know that you feel that it's been overdiagnosed and possibly in a small way it has, but, you know, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree because I see it all the time. And I just really fear what's going to happen to these children if this is stopped. Because, as you say, the children that have services now, I don't know if they need to be completely reevaluated um, or if it's just going to be, um, you know, new cases. But, um, you know, how how will we account for this huge population? How will these children get the services? I mean, parents have come so far in advocating and, and helping these children, I would just hate to see us take a step back. I think two, two answers to that. The first is that the 
having the label has been very helpful to some and very harmful to others. The parents really split both ways on this, and, and so do people who've gotten the label. But um, sometimes the over-labeling of um, eccentricity and difference Difference should be considered, in many cases, part of life and, and maybe even desirable. You wouldn't want everyone being the same. And um, certainly it's been enormously useful for, for some people to have the label, especially when it's appropriately applied. But I get many, many communications from parents who are relieved to, 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 to find out that maybe their kid was overdiagnosed, that talk about the stigma the, the kid experienced, feel, being made to feel different because of having the label. So I think it cuts both ways. I think in terms of the services, it's a very, very tough question. I'm just saying that the DSM definition is elastic. It's not a very clear um, guide to um, making these decisions. I think that it's been um, overly um, used, uh, depended upon uh, in school systems for deciding who gets services and who doesn't. And it makes much more sense to, to target the services to particular needs Mm -hmm. rather than this vague overall diagnosis. Now, you're bringing up the practical problem, how to go from here to there, and I don't have an answer to that. You know, my biggest concern is for the twice-exceptional kids, the kids that are very, very bright, um, that have social deficits, that have com difficulties in communication. Um, you know, those are the kids I'm really concerned about because – if we start taking steps backwards where a child has to, um, you know, have learning disabilities or difficulties in learning, you know, th th these brilliant kids are going to fall through the cracks. Um, so, well, you know, that's but, but that's Marianne, Marianne, let, me, let me present the other point of view, though. The, the, the educational budgets don't increase. It's a zero-sum game. So that um, when resources are allocated for one type of problem, you're stealing from a kid who has another type of problem. And it's an interesting judgment call, which I'm not prepared to make. I don't have the expertise to make this, whether we should worry more about these brilliant kids who have social problems or worry more about kids who have maybe all sorts of learning disabilities that are less able to get resources now because they, they've been diverted towards the, the autistic diagnosis. Well, they're, no equally, lunch, they're, they're equally impaired. In my opinion, they're equally impaired. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's difficult, and I don't know who's going to make this decision. I mean, I I wouldn't want to be that person. Um, but, you know, this is a serious problem. I, I, I don't think it should be made on the basis of a, a DSM definition that's so elastic. I think right. that there has to be a more rational way of deciding how to allocate rare school services than based on um, a definition of autism that can increase or decrease by, by 30 or 40 percent, depending on whether you add or subtract one criteria to the definition. It's way too elastic you know, to be meaningful. You know, and, and I, I think that's where, you know, the, the, there also needs to be an overhaul in, in the way that the schools deal with this as well and how they allocate their funds and how they prioritize differentiated educations. But, um, you know, many people... Uh, many parents um, of children who have um, autism, you know, have, have said to me in preparation for this interview, why is autism in the DSM anyway? It's really a neurological condition, and most times it's diagnosed by a neurologist. Yeah, I, I would have no argument with that. <laughs> it, it just seems, you know, most people, you know, are diagnosed by um by a neurologist. You know, if nothing else, you know, I was thinking that, um, you know, the autism community is the most divided community that I could think of, and uh, this, this seems to be the one issue that they're really coming together with. So, you know, it's very strange. Mm -hmm. um, now, sensory processing disorder 
Is that even being uh, is that being put in the DSM? No, I, I haven't followed that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know either because you know so I many don't of think these, so. all so many of these kids, a lot of the issues that they have are sensory. Um, you know, and and being treated with neuroleptics or other drugs isn't going to help a sensory issue. No. I, I know that it's been suggested, and I don't know where it stands right now. You know, if if you could, um, you know, my fear is that, and I know it's your fear, that people are going to lose lose faith in the psychiatric profession with all the controversy. Um, you know, what what does all of this say about that? Well, I think that um, the, the, the clear message that I'd like to have uh, people hear is that psychiatry does a tremendous amount of good when it stays with what it knows what it's doing. And that particularly for the clear-cut psychiatric problems, it's, it's a huge mistake not to get psychiatric treatment. Right. That the closer we uh, get to um, the boundary with normal, the, the less severe the problems, the less classic the problems, and the younger the child, the less certain you should be. And that doesn't mean there shouldn't be treatment, but it, it means there should be more careful thought placed on the treatment. And I certainly, one of the things the survey showed was that most people are taking medicine without having a mental health professional consultation. So most of the medicine is being given out by primary care physicians, and most people don't even see a mental health clinician. To me, that's responsible for the uh, overdiagnosis and the overuse. And so the more the problem is on the boundary with you know, mild to, to, to moderate to, to maybe non-existent, the more atypical the problem is, um, the more likely the person can do without a diagnosis and without treatment. So it needs to be individualized. Get help, get second opinions, read a lot. Don't don't listen to every every opinion you hear. Ask questions. Don't be shy with doctors. Question them. Challenge what is going them. on with the um, with the um, the problem with um, stimulants? Um, parents are just unable to get them. What what is going on with that? Well, the huge thing that's happening, it's a battle between the FDA and the DEA. The, the Drug Enforcement Agency is terribly worried about the large secondary market because of the diversion of drugs because prescriptions are being given out so easily. So they're trying to crack down. The FDA is worried there's a shortage of medication, and the drug companies have kind of taken advantage of the situation. They're producing the expensive pills and not producing the generic pills. Mm-hmm. So there's enough stimulant to go around, but the drug companies are putting it into the stuff they make a lot of money on. You know, with so much controversy going on about this uh, DSM-5, and, you know, everyone's concerned, are they rushing to get it out, you know, for a deadline? You know, how do you think that the Internet and media um, has changed um, the whole aspect of this? I mean, when you were doing the DSM-4, um, did you have this pressure and controversy? And was it, you know, you mentioned before that it's so confidential. Was that something that was going on back when you did it? No, we had everything was out front, and we shot down most of the ideas. So we had about 100 suggestions for new diagnoses, and the, the only two that made it in were um, Asperger's and Bipolar 2 for adults. It was mm-hmm. shot down lots of suggestions that might have caused this controversy. So it was, it was handled within the group, the, the kind of uh, careful discipline to prevent lots of suggestions that would be, lead to this degree of, of, of concern and, and fear about the unintended consequences of the manual. I think the the uh, internet is amazing. I, I barely I can't use a computer. I just use a BlackBerry, and so I never understood the internet until lately. But the power of the internet is, is enormous, and I think the only thing that will 
influence the American Psychiatric Association to drop the bad suggestions will be programs like yours, um, things on the Internet, and newspaper articles. And I think there's yeah, a lot, a lot happening in that direction now. And, and I think that it's possible that they'll come to their senses, although so far it's been difficult for them to see the light. Yeah, You know, there are a lot of petitions going around. I don't know if they're useful or not, but, um, you know, I hope they're listening, and I hope they join me. Um, you know, I'd really like to hear, um, you know, what they have to say about the whys and hows, and, you know, I think parents and, you know, Americans deserve to know. And as we well, said... I think you should invite, invite someone. You have invited them, but put pressure on them to come on the program. Explain okay, how I'm, I'm, you're, I'm waiting. you're giving the other side, and you, don't, you want yes, to no, have no, both no, sides. No, 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 it's been accepted. And, I just haven't set a date yet. It's been accepted. So, you know, that, that interview will happen. And I'm really looking forward to it because I think that it's important that, um, you know, people understand what's going on and, you know, you know what they're doing. Um, you know, and like you said, you're all good people doing good things. Um, you know, I thank you very much for joining me. Um, you know, I thank you for what you've done. I mean, you know, working, creating the DSM-4 um, has changed people's lives. So, you know, I thank you and I thank you for joining us. Well, I thank you for making these issues um, more public, and hopefully you'll have some effect. Maybe they'll listen. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.